0: My Father, we ask you now in these next few moments that you would take your word, your living word, and that you would use it to mold us and shape us into the image of your dear Son. We ask you that our minds would be clear to receive, that our hearts would be unfettered, that our wills would be submissive to all that you command. And that our affections would be excited and lifted up to your glory, to the effect that we would honor you with our lives and that we would delight in you above all else in this world as we serve you and wait to be with you, our King, forever. Pray these things in the matchless name of Christ, amen. Well, it's good to be back, Uh, although only for a week, it has been a... Great pleasure to have Ted, I think was it six weeks that we were in Genesis or so, and what a blessing it was uh, to us to not only look at the life of uh, Joseph and then to look at a few passages in Matthew, but just to have uh, Ted minister the word of God to us. So I'll be back in the pulpit uh, today just to give you an overview of what we're going to do. And then uh, Pastor Reardon will be back going through uh, Ephesians. Uh, He wanted to finish a series in chapter 3 and 4. And then we'll be back finally in Matthew 26, probably near the end of July. And then we'll be there for a while, probably uh, until we complete the gospel. Yes, it does have an ending. You may have wondered that. We've been in it a long time, but we will get there. And by the way, this is the, I'm the test pilot for our new uh, audio gear here, so hopefully it'll, it'll work out. We had some issues with Ted when he was preaching, and so, so if it scratches or I fiddle with it, please uh, forgive me. Um, we'll make adjustments in the days ahead. Uh, well, let me introduce our passage to you this morning. You can go ahead and be turning there in John chapter 15, John chapter 15. And to introduce this passage, I would just make note of this, that while we have such glorious doctrines of the Christian faith, such as justification by faith alone, the doctrine of sanctification, the doctrine of glorification, and all of these other wonderful truths that define and explain uh, the Christian faith and all that God is for us in Christ and in our salvation, at the very heart of salvation is the reality of relationship. The reality of relationship. And it is a relationship of such profound magnitude that it staggers the mind to grasp it. And it exceeds every false conception that man has ever attempted through God to, in every false conception of how they define God or define our relationship with God. It is glorious. It is a relationship in which God who is triune, which means he is one God in the persons of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This God sweeps those he has chosen before the foundation of the world into a union with himself through the eternal Son, who took on flesh, who died for sin, who rose from the dead, and sent the Spirit to unite us to himself and usher us into an eternal fellowship With God, with the Father and the Son. Now, John's Gospel portrays these realities in some ways more clearly than all of the others. And the apex of that, the climax of that revelation, really could be found in Jesus' own prayer to the Father in John 17. Don't turn there. Let me just read to you a few verses. He says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, verse 20, but for those who would believe in me through their word, looking then even to us, beloved, those who have believed through the word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. He says, later, I in them. And you and me that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. There is in this simple and yet profound language the acknowledgement by the lips of Christ himself that he shares in a oneness with the Father that is a oneness of eternal love, fellowship, An affection, a oneness of mind, of purpose, and glory, as well as a oneness of nature as God. And this unity that Christ shares with the Father, so all those who belong to Christ and are in Him by the Spirit, share as well in this eternal and intimate fellowship with the Father through the Son. It is to say that the Father's love for His own Son, His eternal love, and the Son's love for the Father becomes the paradigm. It becomes, in some ways, the example and the context of our own relationship with both the Father and the Son by the Spirit. And it becomes the example of our own relationship with one another. We'll mention this later, but it is to say that Jesus' love for the Father and obedience to the Father displayed in his life is the model or the paradigm for our own love to Jesus and our faithfulness and unity with him. This is absolutely amazing. And it is these realities that in many ways are brought together in our passage this morning, which is John chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. This very relationship that believers have with Christ and then through Christ with the Father, by the Spirit, is the emphasis this morning of Jesus through the language of abiding. Through the language of abiding. And this language of abiding considers both that intimate union that believers have, this spiritual union that believers have with Christ, and it also brings out then the responsibility of believers, those who share this intimate fellowship, to live in accord with that life. In other words, to demonstrate that life. And he uses the language here then of bearing fruit. Of bearing fruit. Now, Because we're not normally in John, we are, by going to chapter 15, jumping into the book without context. And so let me give you just a brief, broad context of the Gospel of John in our passage this morning. Chapters 1 through 12 are... Often identified as the Book of Signs, it is this revelation of Christ, particularly through these signs that He did, that were all pointing to and revealing something about His nature and His glory and His work. And then through chapters thirteen through twenty-one, are sometimes called is sometimes called the Book of Glory. It is that work that Christ would do whereby He would glorify the Father, which was going to the cross. As an atonement for sin and rising from the dead. Now in this second half, this book of glory, we find chapters 13 and 17, which record these events of, and conversations and teaching of Jesus with his disciples on the night before he's going to be betrayed. So he's speaking to them about his departure and he's preparing them for his departure and the things to come. So they mark a transition and a new emphasis of Jesus, particularly on his relationship to the disciples and their new relationship to him and to the Father that will come about after the coming of the Spirit who Jesus would send when he ascends back to the right hand of the Father. Jesus mentions this new relationship in chapter 17. He says, The Spirit of truth in the world cannot see, uh, chapter 17, and verse 14, because it does not know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. You will have a new relationship with the Spirit, and by that Spirit, then a new relationship with me and with the Father. A relationship that he describes in overwhelmingly profound terms. We'll look at this later, but let me mention to you for one example here in verse 20. In that day of chapter 14, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. There is a sharing of an intimate, a profound, and an eternal relationship that the believers have with God. With God. And this relationship then is magnified again here in chapter 15 and explained. So read with me in the first 11 verses of John chapter 15 and then we'll try our best or I will try my best to get through uh, this passage this morning. Read with me in verse 1 all the way down to verse 11. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. And as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in my words, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. And if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be made full. Amazing, amazing passage. And in this, then we will consider two aspects of this abiding, the wonder of abiding in Christ and the warning of not abiding in Christ. The wonder of abiding Christ and the warning of not abiding in Christ. Let's look firstly at the first two verses here and set the context or the stage of Jesus's teaching by looking at the nature of God and the spiritual life in Christ. He says in verse 1, Regarding the nature of God, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. This is an absolutely incredible statement that in essence pictures and acknowledges Jesus as the source of spiritual life for his people. And the father as the one who sovereignly maintains the purity and the growth of that life in those who are attached to the son, who are in union with him. Now it is significant... This statement I am the true vine because this is the last of Jesus's I am statements in the Gospel of John. And these statements uniquely in the Gospel of John are designed to communicate or to reveal Jesus as one who is bear who or one who bears the attributes of God. Again, a consistent theme throughout the gospel. The Father and the Son are distinct, and yet they are one God. And together with the Spirit, they work in harmony in creation and in redemption. So there is a glorious distinction between the Father and Son and yet a glorious unity as well. He states this most succinctly in chapter 10, verse 30. And he says, I and the Father are one. They are one certainly in their work of redemption in that context of keeping those sheep who belong to Christ, but they are able to do that work as one because they share the same nature as God. And the Jews understood this and repeatedly when Jesus made those statements, what did they want to do? Right? They wanted to pick up stones and they wanted to stone him because he was making himself equal to God. We read it this morning in John chapter 5. In other words they understood exactly what John established at the outset of the gospel that this word who would be revealed in the flesh is God. When he said simply I am in John 8:58 identifying himself with the God who revealed himself to Moses in the Old Testament it was then a statement that incited absolute rebellion and rejection from the Jewish leaders. So this I am statement is here in this context, then, a statement of the divine Christ, the God-man, but here a statement that reveals his divine nature. But it does more than that. It is a statement that identifies Jesus as the one through whom God would accomplish all of his saving acts. He is the one through whom that all of the spiritual life that God designed for his people, the relationship that the Father was calling them into, the salvation that he was going to accomplish through Christ, would all come through the one who is the true vine. Now listen to just many of these other statements. There's 7 of them throughout the Gospel of John. He says then in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. He says in John 8:12, I am the light of the world. He says in John 10:7, I am the door of the sheep. He says in John 10:11, I am the good shepherd. In John 11:25, I am the resurrection and the life. In John fourteen six, I am the way and the truth and the life, and here I am the true vine. Each of those are filling out the reality of all that Christ is for us. That he is the one in whom we have life, in whom our life is sustained, in whom our life is communicated, in whom we have fellowship with God, with the Father. Absolutely magnificent. And here, then, he demonstrates that through this imagery of a vine and a vine dresser. Now, vineyards are common in the land of Palestine. And so, as you would expect, their common imagery are used as metaphors often throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. They act as parables or illustrations. Now in the Old Testament, Jesus, or, or the Old Testament, Israel was the vine and the vineyard that God planted and cared for. We won't look at all these passages. it'll take too long, but you might be familiar with Isaiah chapter five. Isaiah was the vineyard that God planted, and the vines in that vineyard that He planted, and he expected to produce good fruit, instead produced only sour grapes. In other words, because of the sin. That was endemic to the nation of Israel. All of God's care and good purposes for them only ended ultimately in their destruction. Their judgment by God. They were never all that God intended them to be. Because sin and through the occasion of sin their spiritual downfall was always imminent. And that really then is the story of the Old Testament and the nation of Israel. And because of that constant downfall, because of the constant pollution of sin, uh, they anticipated and they looked forward to a time when God would give them a fruitfulness that would make them to realize all that he had designed them to be. Now listen to Psalm 80, anticipating this time and it would be the closest really old testament background to our passage in John 15. He says in Psalm 80 this he says just just listen don't turn there. O Lord of hosts how long will you be angry with the prayer of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears and you have made them to drink tears in large measure. He says in verse seven, O God of hosts, restore us, and cause your face to shine upon us, and we will be saved. You removed a vine from Egypt, and you drove out the nations, and you planted it. They're referring to the nation of Israel. He says in verse fourteen, O God of hosts, Turn again now, we beseech you, and look down from heaven and see and take care of this vine. Even the shoot with your right hand is planted, and on the son whom you have strengthened for yourself, it is burned with fire, it is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. But let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, and upon the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. In other words, they... We were looking for God to do for the nation of Israel and to make them everything that they had consistently failed to be. They incited the judgment of God, but they looked forward to the time when they would know again a permanent blessing of God. And so here in John 15, what is absolutely unique in the imagery of Christ, though. Building off of that Old Testament imagery is this that Jesus says, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. In other words, all that Israel was supposed to be but failed to be, Jesus says that He is that. He is that. He is the true vine. He is the one through whom God's blessings and purposes would be accomplished. Now let me just note here, by saying that he is the true vine does not mean that he is the true vine in uh, contrast to all of the false vines. It is simply to say this, that he is the essence. He is the substance of all that God designed Israel to be. He is the essence of it. He is the one who, one has noted, embodies God's true intentions for Israel. He's the channel through whom God's blessings would flow. Is essentially, it was to be in Christ where Israel failed. In Christ, all of God's purposes would be fulfilled. Namely this, that he would produce the fruit of spiritual life that would be to the glory of God. That he would produce the spiritual fruit, the spiritual life that would be to the glory of God. He then is the true vine. He is the true vine. The one in whom and through whom Life comes. And note secondly then about this in the nature of God. In that the Father then is the fi- vine dresser. The Father is the vine dresser. Which is to say simply this. That all of that process, all of that reality of Christ as the, as the essence of the spiritual life that God would give to his people... That all of that is under the supreme control of the whole, that the Father is in supreme control of that whole process. And here then is an example then of the unity and the distinction of the Father and the Son that he intimated earlier. That I am in my Father, that you are in me. Here you are in the true vine, and my Father is the one overseeing and nurturing and caring for this life that you have in and through me. Let's look at the spiritual life. Notice it. Look at verse 2. He says, Every branch then in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it that it may bear more fruit. Now this is, again, an absolutely incredible statement. And this statement then is really at the essence. It's at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian, to have spiritual life in Christ. It is to bear fruit fruit. It is to give evidence of the life of Christ in you. Now let me begin first here then by defining this fruit. What is this fruit? Because that's, that's the essence. Either if you have fruit, then you're a part of the vine. If you don't have fruit, then you're removed from the vine. What is this fruit? Well, the primary idea of fruit is this, that fruit is, as you might well understand, fruit is what's produced because of an action Well, because of a state. Either fruit, then, if a tree is an orange tree, then that tree is a tree that will only produce oranges on its limbs. In other words, the fruit gives evidence of what kind of tree that it is, right? This is very common imagery, then, that Jesus uses repeatedly. He tells, then, those who are false teachers, he says that they are to... The leaders of Israel, they are to bear the fruit of repentance. In other words, the reality of your repentance is shown by what you actually do in your life. He says in Matthew 7, he says, You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the fruit then is what is the evidence of what a person is inwardly. A very simple illustration and yet a profound one. This fruit then, the evidence that's shown, is described in a variety of ways in the New Testament. As praise to God, as generous uh, generous care for the saints, as salvation, as righteous living in general. But here it has a very distinct meaning. The fruit that Jesus is speaking of here is essentially this. It is the product of a dynamic and genuine fellowship with the Father through the Son. It is the evidence of having the indwelling ministry of the Spirit. And what is unique about Jesus' teaching here in John 15 is that he's not focused so much or emphasizing the external fruit, though that is certainly a part of it, but he's emphasizing the internal reality out of which that fruit flows. It would be more in line with the kind of thing that Paul talked about in Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit, that which flows out of a genuine and real presence of the Spirit in a believer. So the very essence then of spiritual life is to have a vibrant and dynamic and living relationship with God through Christ. And so he uses that there in verse 2 then to set up those two possibilities of those who are attached in some way to Christ. They are those who bear fruit and those who do not bear fruit. Those who do not bear fruit are purged from the vine. Those who bear fruit are pruned by the Father. Let's look at these then. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. He takes away. The branch here is, of course, a person. It is an individual who is attached to Christ in some manner. In some manner. There is clearly some attachment to Christ. It is an individual who is in him. And yet, it is an attachment to Christ that does not have the life of the vine in it. Therefore, it does not produce fruit. Now, this is a profoundly simple statement. Very simple. There is no, where there is no fruit in a person, there is no life. And there is no life of Christ in them. And therefore, no salvation. There is, according to Jesus' own words here then, no such thing as a fruitless Christian. There's no such thing. If somebody fails to bear fruit, then the Father's sovereign work of purging is that he takes that branch away. That is, he removes them completely from any association with Christ. He cuts them off forever forever. Now some see here then an allusion to church discipline. However, that's not likely for at least this reason. One, God is the one who's doing the taking away here, not the other branches. This is something that God does. There is no command or expectation that the other branches would remove this fruitless branch. This is something that God is doing. He takes them away then, is best understood as the final exposure of these people as false believers and their eternal removal of Christ. From Christ. He'll bring that out in verse 6. We'll look at it at the end. It's those who are thrown away as a branch. Dried up. Gathered and cast into the fire. And they are burned. And they are burned. Now look at the second work of the father. So he purges those who don't bear fruit. And secondly he prunes. Or he. Well he prunes those who do bear fruit. Look at what he says. Every branch that bears fruit. He cleanses it. So that it may bear more fruit. And this is then the relationship of the Father, the activity of the Father towards those who are truly in Christ, who truly belong to the Son. He prunes them. He prunes them. Now the term here that's translated prune has two basic ideas. It has the idea of cause something to be clean and it has the idea of to remove superfluous growth from a plant. And it is that idea here primarily of removing that idea of pruning, which is why the translators use that term, of removing everything that hinders the bearing of fruit on the vine. Now, you know, everybody does who has any... any uh, experience with gardening that each year you have to cut back the dead growth that's on a plant in order for it to grow back more full. If it's a rose bush or a plant that has flowers, you do it so it'll have more flowers and there'll be more beautiful flowers. That same process was done in the care of a vineyard to cut back all of that that hindered the true growth of the vine. Now notice here then in contrast to the the brand, the fruitless branch, the father does not cut this branch and take it away from the vine, but what he's doing specifically is removing all of that that is dead and worthless on the branch so that it will bear more fruit. These branches have life in them, and though they are pruned, it is only so that they might, in fact, be more fruitful. And clearly then, the idea here is that if You are a Christian. If you truly have God's life in you, then expect God to continually be pruning you to bear more fruit from removing the dross that is in your life. How does he do this? Well, essentially then... God is committing himself here so that you might be a more fruitful Christian to remove everything in your heart and in your life and in your affections that hinders your love for Christ, that hinders your love and obedience for him, that hinders your love and your service for other believers. This is the pruning work of God. This is God's intention for trials in your life. This is God's purpose in the difficulties and the things that he does in your life to remove from you that which kills your affections for Christ. Now, there are many ways, and we're not going to look through these. I'm going to just mention them because I want to get to the end. How does he do that, though? Let me mention to you at least a few ways that he does that. How does God prune you in your life? One way that he prunes you in your life is he allows you, indeed maybe causes you, to fail, to fail at things, to have those things that you think can be accomplished by your own strength to come to nothing, to be ruined. We have the greatest example of this in Peter in John 13. If you looked over just a couple of chapters, you remember that Jesus said that he was going to die and... That though where he was going, he said the disciples could not follow. Peter said, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus said, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. And we know the story that Peter went out, standing in his own strength, and he fell fat on his face. What was God doing in that experience? He was pruning Peter. Peter had the reality of life in him, but he also had pride that God needed to prune from him. God prunes us through loss of those things that are precious to us. Psalm thirty-nine, eleven says, you consume what is precious to a man. You consume what is precious to a man. One said, commenting on that verse, that Yahweh takes away man's own definition of meaning in life and consumes his pleasures and wealth like a destructive moth. Not to be harsh, but so that you might bear more fruit. Hebrews 12 speaks of God pruning through suffering, even suffering for righteousness in the discipline of the Lord that you might share in his holiness. And James speaks of various trials. Now here's the distinction though in terms of what Christ is saying here. For some, even for many, these very trials of loss, of failure, and of suffering, even suffering for righteousness in the various trials of life, are things that cause them to depart from Christ. There are things that cause them to fail to bear fruit, But for the true branch, for that that is truly attached to Christ, it doesn't cause them to depart from Christ, but in fact, to bear more fruit. Why is that the case? Because if you are a true branch, then you have the life of Christ in you. You have the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. And those things then are by God's sovereign plan and purpose Will grow you. They are designed, and they will grow you. They will make you more mature in faith. Indeed, it is the real, spiritual reality in a person that is evident by persevering through trials. Persevering through trials. Now, God encourages them. Look at verse three. He says, "Then a disciple then has already tasted the cleansing work of God in salvation." In other words. He says, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. You're already clean. So God is going to do a cleansing work so that you may bear more fruit. He can't be talking here about salvation because the assumption is here that the branch is already attached to Christ. Already has the life of the vine, the life of the Christ in them. And so this pruning work of the Father is that they might be more fruitful than they already are. So he's not talking here about entering into salvation. He's talking about those things that give evidence already of salvation and of being in Christ. And he affirms that here. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. He mentioned, actually he said this similar thing back in 13 when, uh, if you'll remember, he went to wash the feet of Peter as he was... Demonstrating to them not only his act of service that would send him to the cross, but actually an act of service and humility that was to demonstrate. Their own love for one another. But he comes to Peter. And Peter said, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. Never shall you do that. And Jesus tells him, if I don't wash your feet, then you have no part in me. And Peter said, well, then, Lord, wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. Speaking there of Judas. And so the idea here is this. That God is going to prune you. He's going to bring you low. He's going to do things in your life that are going to break you. But it is that you might bear more fruit. And it is in bearing more fruit that you show yourself to be already clean. In other words, that is the true disciple. Their faith in Christ was genuine. They had faith experienced the reality of regeneration. God had removed that spiritual rebellion of their heart and unbelief toward Christ. So if you are clean, then that is what God has done in you. That is what God has done in you. He has, in the words of uh, chapter 524, he's brought you from death to life. He's brought you to death to life. And Jesus says he did that here through the word or because of the word, through the word might be better, through the word which I have spoken to you. Unlike others who abandoned Christ when his teaching became too difficult, the disciples remained. They held on. And by holding on, they showed themselves to be true disciples. Jesus said this in chapter 6. If you remember after the teaching on him eating and his flesh and drinking his blood, he said... Some of the disciples said to them, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? And indeed, it was a difficult statement. It was a hard statement to hear, it was challenging. And Jesus said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? Does it cause you to stumble? And indeed, for many of them, it did. And they left him, they walked away. In verse 66 it says as a result of this many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. These are those who did not have his word abiding in them. And so when they hit the difficult part of faith, when they hit those things that challenged them, when they hit those things that confronted them, their result was to walk away. It was to say this is too difficult. I cannot hear this. I'm going to leave. But that's not the case with those who did stay. Jesus says to them, or Simon Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Listen, you have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. He had his word then abiding in them. That is to say that those words that caused some to leave because they were difficult, in those who truly had the life of Christ in them, it caused them to stay. Because they knew, they had received those words by faith. They were in them and they were clinging tightly to Christ. So a disciple clings to the words of Christ, believing every word, even when it challenges you, even when it goes up against things that you may have held for your whole life, even when it goes against and contradicts your deepest desires, even when it calls you to the kind of discipleship that may absolutely devastate you, the true disciple has his word abiding in him, and he remains. He remains because he can do no other. He can do no other. And you can do no other if you abide in Christ than to cling to Christ and to his word by faith. By faith. And in fact, in this context here of pruning there is a reality in which it is here the word or the the pruning the 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 trials that god brings in our life working together with the word in our heart that we receive by faith that he purifies us and makes us more like christ that living and active word that is sharper than a two-edged sword cutting between the thoughts and the intentions of the heart As that word does its work in us, as we receive that word by faith, as we feed on and live on that word, then those difficulties in the midst of it are purifying. They're sanctifying. They break us, but yet then by the word we are built back up. This is the constant experience of those who truly belong to God. Let me give you just one example of this. Psalm 119, the psalmist says this, that same idea. He says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Now I keep your word. In verse 71, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. This is the idea here in defining or describing that, that life of a disciple. Is that God's trials when met by a faith that clings to and holds tightly to Christ through his word. Are instruments of our growth. Of our growth. And he then adds to this command verse 4. He says the command then Our responsibility is then to abide in Christ. He says, abide in me and I in you. Again, an astounding statement. An astounding statement. And this command to abide in me, again, is at the very heart of spiritual growth. And by saying abide in me, God doesn't mean, Christ isn't saying this in terms of a passive sense. Like, I just kind of remain and try to keep myself in Jesus and feeling really lovely towards Jesus. It is an active kind of abiding. This is a command that is to be obeyed. It is something that those who are in Christ are to do. It is an active faith, an active abiding that pursues loyalty and fellowship and obedience. Essentially, it's this. It is a command to be diligent to foster and to nurture an intimate fellowship with Christ. And it is the responsibility of a believer and it is an obedient response, a, a responsibility of the believer in obedience. And this is the point that he's emphasizing that flows out of a genuine relationship with him. That shows out of that flows out of a spiritual reality in the heart. This is not, let me note, a command to remain in spiritual union with Christ. Spiritual union with Christ is something that God does. He does that by the Spirit. He does that by His own sovereign work. We don't bring it about and we don't maintain that. Rather, what we do is we bear the fruit of that union. And that's what he's emphasizing here. Abide, and by abiding in Christ, in other words, remaining loyal to him, being steadfast in faith, clinging to Christ, holding to him in every vicissitude of life, by doing that, then we both demonstrate and experience the greater, to greater degrees the reality of his life in us, of him in us. As he says here, and I in you. This is intimate spiritual union. This is then Christ looking forward to those new covenant realities. This isn't something, as opposed to how some would take this, but it isn't something that they could have fully experienced at that time. He'd already defined this as something that was yet to come. He said back in verse 20, we mentioned it earlier. Well, beginning in 17. The spirit of truth was going to come who was going to be in them. It is after that moment, he says, that, I, I w- that you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He'll say later in verse 23, If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode in him. Now, clearly then, Christ could not be in you and in the disciples why he physically stood there, Right? This isn't saying that physically Christ is in the disciples. is in the the humanity of Christ. This is a reality that they would know after the coming of the Spirit and the Spirit of Christ who would give them a fullness and bring to them a spiritual reality that would only be known after the day of Pentecost. These then are new covenant realities. These are the realities that are true to us, but at this moment of Christ speaking, were future to them in terms of their fullness. Let me say what he does not mean before we look at this more closely at what he does mean. What he does not mean is this, that his abiding in you is a result of your obedience. He doesn't mean that his abiding in you is a result of your obedience. Now, we already mentioned that. It doesn't mean that if I obey, then I enact, I initiate, and I keep the spiritual union of Christ in me. That's not what he means. Again, that is a sovereign work of God. There's, we don't keep that union What he means here is this, essentially. As you actively seek to trust him, as you engage him in fellowship, as you walk in obedience to his command, the reality and confidence of his living in you and the proof of his living in you in your sharing in his life is made manifest. And you will continually draw from him resources of spiritual strength and deep interpersonal fellowship with him and the Father. This is then the abiding is the reality that flows out of fellowship and marks a true from a false believer. I want you to notice one thing here. Look at what he says. Abide in me, in verse 4, and I in you. Now this is going to be important later, but see this here. See that little statement, and I in you? He only uses that, not only in this context, but throughout the Gospel of John, in terms of true believers. So the branch that is in him, but Christ is not in that branch or individual, is a fruitless and a false believer he'll remove. But the reality for those who are truly in Christ is not only that they are in Christ and attached to to him, but more importantly, that he is in them and attaches them to himself. It is the I in you that is the distinguishing reality here. Now, in terms of the metaphor, what does that mean for you? What what importance is that? It means this. That in this metaphor of the vine, it means then that a person can be in Christ and attached to him in some way, but he is not in them in terms of a real and a vital and a genuine spiritual union and reality. That there is maybe an external attachment to Christ, but there is no internal relationship and reality of faith and love and obedience and trust in Christ. There is no reality of relationship and fellowship with the Father. So in other words... This is John's way of saying what we've heard repeatedly throughout the Gospel of Matthew and really throughout all of Scripture. That it is not the person who says they belong to Christ, even is active in Christian service, but it is this. The one who knows the reality of a genuine fellowship with Christ out of conviction and affections of the heart. Who knows the reality of the stirring of the Spirit in creating faith and love for Christ. The spirit that produces commitment to Christ and a compelling impulse to obey him and to seek him and to seek the face of the Father in him. That's what he's talking about. And notice here then in relation to that, that Jesus never tells us to be the fruit bearers. His command here is to abide in him. In other words, fruit is the product of abiding in him. That has massive implications for us. Let me at least make this one. The focus then of your Christian life, the focus of your spiritual life and your growth, is not to try to put on more fruit, is not to what you do. The focus of our Christian life and the focus indeed of us as a church is to know Christ It is to glorify Christ by knowing him. As we make Christ the center of our attention and all that he is and all that he has done for us or all that the Father has done for us in him, then you produce fruit. You produce fruit. There is so much attention on a variety of other things that distract from Christ, but the reality is if you want to grow in Christ, seek to know him. Have his word abiding in you learn more about him and as we'll see obey him and love him and trust him so the more that you pursue the knowledge of Christ and rely on him the more you find in him every spiritual resource and joy and you're conformed to his character now I want us to go quickly here because I need to finish uh, and look then what is the character of this abiding in Christ what is the character of abiding in Christ I'll repeat these if you want to write them down but I'll go a little quickly First is this, and he's going to describe this in verses 4 and 5. Is spiritual abiding has a complete dependence on Christ. Spiritual abiding has a complete dependence on Christ. Look at what he says. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do Nothing. It's a simple parallel. The person who does not remain in Christ, the person who does not abide in Him and maintain that vital reality of fellowship with Him, is the one who will not know the fruit of God. And more specifically here, the command then is to realize in order to do that, that You must have a sense of complete dependence on Him. A complete dependence on Him. A complete sense of reliance on Him. To abide in Christ and to have Him abiding in you then is to recognize that the entirety of your spiritual life is bound up in Christ. There's really a, although Paul would write later, there is a sense here in which Paul reflects this when he says, No good thing dwells in me that is in my flesh. That is the one who realizes that in me, of myself, of my own resources, I can accomplish nothing. One has said, by implication, external apparent growth that is not fueled by pulsating life within is not indicative of true spiritual life. So when you're abiding in Christ, there is no confidence in the flesh. There is a heart desire and affections and conviction of faith that sees everything you have as coming from Christ and to be found only in Christ. That's the idea. You can depart from Christ. It is to realize you can do nothing. Nothing. So it's an inner spiritual attitude of complete dependence upon Christ. Paul said, the life I live, I live by faith. In Christ. Who loved me. And gave himself up for me. It's the idea of. That, that was, he communicated in 1 Corinthians 15. That all of the work that he did. That was in response to God's grace. Yet was fueled only by grace. And Paul said. It's not me. But it is the grace of God in me. It is that attitude then. That humbly and completely depends on Christ. So the first one is. The first evidence of abiding in Christ. Is to have A complete dependence upon Christ. Secondly, it's this in verse 7. Spiritual abiding has intimate fellowship with Christ through his word and prayer. Now this is wonderful. Look at what he says. If you abide in me and my words in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And it will be done for you. Again, this is precious. This profoundly captures the reality of spiritual life. And the idea is this, that as the believer feeds on the word of God, as the word of God is in you, as you read scripture, and in that word from God, you hear the voice of God, the voice of Christ, it elicits a response of prayer to God, to the Father, A prayer that is shaped and molded after the image of Christ, the person of Christ. It is to say then that to have God's word abiding in you, again, is not simply to say that I'm praying God's words back to him. It's not just that I'm using scripture in my prayer. When he says here that uh, if, if his word abides in you, ask what you wish and it will be done for you. It's not simply to say that I, I use the, the actual words of scripture and I say that back to God and therefore that will be done to me. It's not even to say to have his word abiding in you that you memorize or that you've studied scripture. It is to say this. That this relationship of the word and of prayer in the spiritual life is this. It is that as you come to the word of God and you believe that word in such a way that you find a knowledge of God that delights your heart. That it moves you as you read that word to trust him. It moves you as you read that word to obey him. It is a believing in scripture in such a way that as you go to the word of God, you see indeed your wisdom is found there. That your hope is found in the God who is revealed there. That the instructions for your life are found there. It is to understand him and to obey him. And when that is the relationship that we have with God through the Word, it flows out then in prayer to Him. If His Word is abiding in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. It is the living Word in the life of His people that fellowship and faith is fostered and grows and then causes a heart that pours out in prayer to God. And that kind of prayer, that kind of heart, that kind of request that is being shaped and molded by that word is the prayer that God answers. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. It will be done for you. He said something similar back in verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Now, this stands in contrast, of course, to praying in the flesh. If I hide iniquity in my heart, you will not hear me, Psalm 66. James 4 3, if you ask so that you might spend it on your own desires, God will not hear you. And amazingly, that kind of self serving prayer is what marks a whole large segment of Christianity in terms of praying only in terms of God's external blessing. That's not what he's talking about here. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about that prayer and that request that goes to God that is shaped by his word and thirdly, a thir- and leads to the third aspect of spiritual abiding and that is concerned that God is glorified through your life. Look at verse 8. So it is a complete dependence on Christ. It is to have his word abiding in you, intimate fellowship with him in prayer. And it is to have a concern that he's glorified in your life. And this, is my fa- and this is my father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. This is what the spirit working through the word produces in the life of those who are abiding in Christ. It is a desire to see Christ glory. It is a desire to see the Father glorified through Christ being evident in your own life. You get that? That is the content of that kind of prayer. Jesus said in John 12, he says, as he's thinking of the cross, he says, Father, what shall I say? Save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So Jesus went to the cross with one Passion on his heart, and that was that in his work on the cross, the Father would be glorified in it. And the Father sent the Son to the cross with one passion that he would glorify the Son so that the Father would be glorified. You see, that is the divine life that we share in. We share in that desire for the glory of God. And so when we pray, and if we're truly abiding in Christ, it means that the content of the affections of our heart and the content then of our prayer that is flowing out of a response of faith to His Word is that God would be glorified in us. That's it. That the Father would be glorified in us. Is that the content of your spiritual life and affections and your prayer? Does that concern you? Jesus is saying that's what it means then to abide in Christ. You want to bear fruit because as you bear fruit, that gives evidence and reality to the person and to the work of Christ. And as you bear evidence and reality to the person and work of Christ in you, the Father is then glorified by all that he's done in Christ. That's the logic of the passage. That's the logic of what Jesus is saying. And a Christian delights in that. Delights in that. Delights in glorifying God in their life. And it is the content of prayer. Number four. Spiritual abiding then is also obedient out of love and desires to maintain loving fellowship with Christ, the Father, and other believers. Look at this. Verse nine. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. This is absolutely astounding. Absolutely astounding. I'm so sorry I can only do no more than mention it this morning. But let me mention a few things to you about this. First of all, notice this. The parallel between Christ's relationship with the Father and our relationship with Christ. Look at what he says, verse 9, in the beginning. Just as... Just as, similar to, just like uh, the Father has loved me, I have loved you, abide in my love. It's an amazing statement. It is to say here, then, that Jesus has loved his own with the very same love of which the Father has loved him. This is being swept up into the divine love of God by his own people. As the Father has loved me, I have loved you. But you must abide in that love. You must abide in it. Secondly then, the ultimate and final expression of that love is obedience. Is obedience. And look again at the parallels. The the model of our obedience to Christ is Jesus' own obedience to the Father. That's the paradigm. That's the model. And so the portrait of this kind of obedience is the total life of Christ. And to understand then what this obedience looks like requires the study of his life in Scripture, to understand the portrait, perfect portrait of who he is and what a life of perfect obedience to the Father looks like. You want to know what an obedient life looks like, what you are to be as a Christian? Study the life of Christ. And it means then as we obey him, we grow in the experience of his love. You want assurance of salvation? You want to be growing in the love of Christ? Obey him. Obey him. That's what he says here. So much to say on that. Let me mention the last one. Spiritual abiding then shares in the joy of Christ in all of life's circumstances. Look at these. Verse 11. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Again, here's the idea. You keep my commandments out of love. As you keep my commandments, you experience the fullness of the love that the Father has for me and that I have for you and that the Father also has for you in me. As you experience the reality of that love, guess what? You increase in joy. Your joy. You increase in the same kind of joy that the Son had in obeying the Father. That's the reality and the dynamic of spiritual life. You want to increase in joy? Then obey him and know more of his love. And as you know his love, you will increase in joy. And this isn't a mere emotionalism. This isn't merely being sentimental. This is, yes, flowing out of a conviction and a love and a faith and a trust in God who demonstrated his own love for us in Christ, but it is expressed in the concrete acts of obedience. You want joy? Then obey Christ. Now let's end with this. His warning then is so much more to say (laughs) with those things, but let me end with this warning. Verse six. The main sub focus of Jesus, of course, has been positive, but he's also been careful to warn us, and that's here. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch, and he dries up, and they gather him them and they cast them into the fire. They cast them into the fire, and they are burned. The reality and here's the warning. Not everyone who attaches himself to Christ have truly tasted of his salvation. Right? That's the warning. The warning is to ultimately lead us to a place then of self-examination. Judas is the primary example who had a great attachment externally to Christ, but he did not have his life in him and he ultimately failed. To fail to abide in Christ, to actively pursue Him, to fail to trust Him, to fail to remain loyal to Him, and therefore to fail to bear fruit, shows that one then is not a genuine disciple. And I imagine, I wonder, if we applied this criteria, each of us to our lives, what would we find? And if we applied this criteria to the church at large, how many would be shown to be self-deceived with a superficial attachment? It's the same idea of self-examination that Paul said, test yourself to see whether you be in the faith, to see if Christ is in you, to see if he's in you. I'm going to end with this quote. If the professed convert distinctly and deliberately declares that he knows the Lord's will, but does not mean to attend it, this is by Spurgeon. You are not to pamper his presumption, but it is your duty to assure him that he is not saved. To do not do not suppose that the gospel is magnified or God glorified by going to the worldlings and telling them that they may be saved at this at this moment by simply accepting Christ as Savior, while they are wedded to their idols and their hearts are still in love with sin. For if I do so tell them, I tell them a lie and I pervert the gospel and I insult Christ and turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. That is the warning that Christ gives here. So the instruction, abide in Christ. Examine yourself to make sure that you have his life in you. Let me pray. And this prayer will close us because of time. I went a little over Ruth. Thanks. Father, we thank you for your instructions which are so full and so clear. And beyond the instructions of the very realities that you have laid before us that that really are hard for us to understand in their fullness. But when we have the reality of the Spirit, we know them in truth. Though they continue to cause us amazement and wonder, though we seek to understand them more. We who know you know the reality of fellowship. That humble dependence upon you. That faith in your word in which we meet with you there. And delight in you and trust you and follow you and are convicted even of our own sin and yet led to the cross of Christ. We know that reality of the desire to obey you and the joy that we have in that obedience. And the experience of your love as the reality of our faith is continually confirmed in us as we see the spirit working in us. We who know you know those realities. But not those who don't know you and don't have this life Being in this auditorium this morning is indeed an example of being attached to you and in you externally in some sense. But Lord, I pray that this reality of spiritual life would be the true experience of those who are here, that it would be my true experience to grow in, and that some of those who have concocted and comforted themselves with some other view of salvation I pray that you would expose them, even this morning, to their own heart and to their own mind and to their own conscience as being falsely attached to Christ and that they would take the warning seriously and turn to you in trust and obedience and help us as a group, individually and as a church, to be growing in these realities that you might be glorified in us. And these things I pray in the matchless name of you, Christ, who died and rose again for us